3: RideList and the RideList app. Download it today for your iPhone. It's a marketplace for gear, boards, wetsuits, skateboards, snowboards, bikes, camera equipment. Buy, sell, swap. Download it now. It's free. RideList. Journalist and cycling photographer Mark Johnson has covered pro cycling since the late 1980s. In 2011, he spent a year following the Garmin pro cycling team as the squad raced all over Europe and North America. The process of writing and shooting a book about that year triggered a fascination with the history of performance-enhancing drugs in sport. Mark spent three years researching his latest book, Spitting in the Soup, Behind the Dirty Game of Doping in Sport. And it was this read that led me to Mark Johnson appearing on the Boardroom podcast. Surfing and cycling, you might be shaking your head a little bit. Those don't necessarily seem to go together. While Mark mainly points his pro camera lens at cyclists, he's also shot surfing at least since I first met him at Black's Beach in the early 1980s when we were on the UCSD surf team together. And Mark has had photos appear in Surfer Magazine and Transworld Surf. With surfing becoming an official Olympic sport at the 2020 Tokyo Games, I thought it would be useful to sit down with Mark and learn about the history of doping in sports. This is, after all, surfing's first shot at the Olympics. Like paddling out at a new surf spot with a rocky reef. We might think we know where the boils are, and we might have even seen the boils. But once we get out there, new boils inevitably appear. The Olympic surfers and the various governing bodies of surfing within the Olympic realm would be wise to proceed with caution. An interesting side note here one day after this interview was conducted, and as I was preparing this introduction, the ISA and WSL sent out a press release titled. ISA and World Surf League reached landmark anti-doping agreement. And the nuts and bolts of this press release state, and I quote, With the 2019 WCT serving as a qualification events for the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020, the WSL has agreed to a restructured anti-doping program ensuring all their CT surfers are compliant with the Olympic Charter and WADA code ahead of surfing's historic Olympic debut. As a professional independent body, the WSL is not a formal signatory to the WADA code, a requirement for athletes or events seeking Olympic eligibility. As such, and to ensure compliance for Olympic qualification, WSL has agreed to implement a tailored anti-doping program under the ISA's anti-doping rules. All WSL CT surfers voluntarily agreed to the program prior to the start of the 2019 WCT season and will now be subject to both in- and out-of-competition testing and whereabouts requirements conducted and managed by the WSL and the International Testing Authority in accordance with the WADA Code. The ITA was formed last year by the stakeholders of the Olympic movement to ensure greater transparency and credibility in global anti doping efforts. End quote. This is good news for Olympic surfing fans, for myself, and for Mark Johnson's concerns moving forward. It is everyone's hope that the Olympic surfing movement comes off without a hitch. The Boardroom Podcast with Mark Johnson. Let us begin. By the way, the book is Spitting in the Soup, Inside the Dirty Game of Doping in Sports by my friend Mark Johnson. Listeners, there will be a sort of a preamble before this, and they'll get to know how you and I know each other. But we go way back from UCSD days, like 35 years or something ridiculous. You've aged well. Early 80s. (laughs) Yeah. Keep surfing. It keeps you young. Yeah, it (laughs) does, right? Um, But you're an author. I was reading here on the back pages here. Um, you have a master's of arts degree and a PhD in English literature. That's right from business from Boston University.
1: Yeah, so I went to UCSD for undergraduate, well, really to serve blacks, and then after that went to Boston to do a PhD in English.
3: Cool. And, and here we are. And it's good timing because, as you know, the 2020 Olympics are just about a year away. And um, I just came back from Japan from the Olympic surfing site, and it's beautiful. And they're building a fabulous footprint there. And, and the waves were fun. I got fun waves. So this all makes tons of sense to sort of begin this talk about the Olympic Games and its movement and how it started and where we go from here. So let me ask you this. Can you give us some backstory on how the modern Olympics came about?
1: So they were, the first modern Olympic Games, apart from the ancient Greek Games, took place in 1896, and they were founded by this French aristocrat named Pierre de Coubertin, who basically wanted to create a theater where aristocrats could do sports in a non-professional way. So he was decidedly, said, the Olympic Games were for wealthy noblemen, and it was men. Women were not welcome. They were just... Basically, there to be podium women, that's about it. And it was essentially seen as sort of a social prophylactic because Coubertin was concerned about the economic and social upheaval that was taking place in Europe due to the Industrial Revolution. So, you had these, these new bourgeois, mercantile class, industrialists who were threatening the power structure, feudal power structure, where previously, you know, power is handed down by God through families and that's how you maintain your power and wealth. Oh,
3: that's interesting that you said that because I always thought after reading the book, I went, oh, okay, Coubertin is concerned that the proletariat is going to get too much power, but it's really the bourgeois class that didn't have money 30 years prior to this. Yes. Now, all of a sudden, they've, they're have they making tons of money and they're not aristocrats. They're just low lives, but right. just happen to get
1: lucky with this, basically yeah. the industrial revolution. Yeah. you're For Coubertin, your place in life is inherited, not earned. And so... The, the Olympic Games was seen as a, a preserve for the feudal order of things. This is a place where at that time in 1896, the notion of training was unbecoming yeah. because as a gentleman, you didn't have to train. It was just this was what your leisure activity was. And so that's what he envisioned. And also he was very much a fan of the british school system so think if you've ever seen the movie chariots of fire envision that where it's this notion of by perfecting the mob, the bind, mind and the body you become closer to god and so that's sort of what he envisioned for the olympics was this this perfection of mankind through spiritual and physical endeavor Never. now that in and of itself i'm a kind of a fan of that like i i get that like, yeah. i'm
3: okay with that just from you know my personal outlook you know um, what is interesting about what he 's trying to do, of course, as you mentioned, is sort of keep the social stratification in check and keep people where he believes they should be in their station in in society and um, and it 's so that it 's sort of this blue blood boarding school thing in England that he looks yeah. at and goes, "Hey, this is pretty cool they 're kind of doing it the right way. We need to do this in france right and so
1: and that 's why professionals were banned so Unless you're old like me and you, Scott, you may not know that up until 1988, pros were banned from the Olympic Games. It wasn't until 1988 that pros were involved. And up until 1988, that was the IOC. That's the International Olympic Committee. They're the the global manager of the Olympic Games. Their number one concern was keeping pros out of the Games. So most infamously, uh, an American athlete named Jim Thorpe. Had his gold medals removed? I believe it was from swimming at the 1912 games because Stockholm somebody, was that. Stockholm? Yes, yeah. Somebody said that he had once earned two dollars a day playing baseball. So the IAC said, "You're out. You no longer have your gold medal." So that was their, that was their bet. That the the blackest thing that could happen in the Olympic games was for a pro to show up
3: because because aristocrats because, weren't professionals. Exactly. They didn't need to be. They were amateurs and it was yep. the highest calling was to be an amateur athlete.
1: And probably the sport that had was most exemplified what Cooperstown didn't want was cycling because cycling was very much a product of the industrial revolution. Once bicycles became available on a mass scale in the 1880s, 1890s, all kinds of cycling clubs sprung up all over Europe. Professional races sprang up in the 1870s, 1880s, and this was a way for a proletarian, a guy who should otherwise be spending his days working in a mine in Roubaix, France, can get a bike. And if he's talented, he can all of a sudden be making lots of money. And the Olympic Games said, no, we, we really shouldn't have cycling in the Olympics because well, they are so professional.
3: Was professional bicycling you know, basically the first, maybe not the first, but one of the first professional sports? of the Industrial Revolution, was professional biking um, uh, the reason for coubertin to create the Olympics, or was it just so happened that they coincided? In other words, did coubertin look at pro, bike, pro bicycling and go, this is why we need to do the Olympics, look at these people, or was it just that they aligned they just al- chronologically? Aligned.
1: Yeah, they aligned. And it's worth going back here, talk a little bit about the birth of professional sports. Before the Industrial Re- Revolution, pro sports didn't exist. So, for instance, in the United States, in 1850, 90% of the population lived in rural areas. They were in farms. Fast forward to 1920, but then over 50% of the population lives in big cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco. What does that mean? All of a sudden, you have a lot of people piled into big cities who have Sunday off. Farmers don't have any days off. And that means the promoters very quickly figured out, hey, I can put a fence around this soccer field. I can build a velodrome, a bike racing track, and start charging money on Sundays, and that allowed for the creation of pro sports. Also, the invention of railroads allowed for teams to get from one place to the other. Mm -hmm. Previous to the 1850s, it would have been impossible to get a whole bunch of athletes from one city to the other quickly. So... The industrial revolution allowed for the creation of of pro sports, and also
3: as your book mentions, the, the um, sort of the movement, the transient nature of of the population moved to the cities because of the industrial revolution. So yeah. now you have a bunch of people in one place that have the weekends off that are looking for something to do
1: besides create a revolution, and they have really grim jobs, and so they're looking for hope either in the bottle of a bottom of a beer glass or in a football stadium, usually both. At the same time.
3: So, tell me about doping and its first occurrence in sport. Um, where do you track that to?
1: Really, from the very beginning of uh, professional sports. So, cycling is probably the best example because some of the earliest cycling events were called six-day races, and Madison Square Garden in New York City would be filled with fans who had come to watch these six day races. How many people in Madison Square Garden do you think? Oh, like- there could be thirty thousand. There's yeah. there's you know in researching this book I found accounts in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune of basically the the stadiums being so filled that fans were bribing ushers to get their, their way in. It was a huge cycling was a hugely popular sport in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, up until really in the nineteen twenties. And so these six-day races is guys would ride around a track for six days, literally six days. And the guy who did the most laps in six days won. So they, they had to take stimulants <laughs> right. just to keep going. And in fact, if you read press accounts from the time, from, from that era, no. newspaper reporters would say these guys were sorely in need of stimulants because they were going slow. And so it was, it was expected that an athlete would take drugs to do their job. And that's an important thing today is, is today we assume that drugs have always been seen as, as corrosive to your body and soul. That is a relatively new phenomenon, this notion that doping is bad and evil, that started in Basically the 1960s. Basically from the 60s. I was going to say 70s. Yeah. Okay, so 60s, yeah. So really for the first 100 years of pro sports, it was expected that a professional athlete would turn to drugs. You know, in in the book, my book, I talk about uh, an Olympic road race uh, – marathon race that was in St. Louis, Missouri. And after the race, the winner, a guy named Thomas Hicks, he had taken strychnine in small amounts along with brandy in order to help him finish. Now you think, well, strychnine, why would you take strychnine? That's rat poison. Well, in small amounts, strychnine is a stimulant. After the race, his physician wrote up an account of it and basically praised the use of drugs in order to help this American win the, the Olympic marathon. Yeah,
3: was, there there, there was, st- was
1: no stigma about it. Your book talks about this
3: concept that even goes back to, um, well, the, the concept is, look, athletes are, you know, the high-level athletes are expected to, to be the best and to do the best and to do whatever it takes yes. to become the best. And they're not your average citizen. These are right. professional athletes. And so this concept of using whatever it takes, including science, yeah. To better yourself was perfectly fine. Yes. And as you mentioned, this concept that, it's, that it has a negative and a moral negative connotation is relatively
1: new. Relatively new. I mean, that the spirit of elite and professional sport is to embrace technology, human endeavor to push the boundaries of human performance. And pharmaceuticals have always been part of the technological toolkit that athletes, particularly endurance athletes, have turned to. Because I think one way to envision how sports is broken out is you have endurance sports, like long-distance cycling, think Tour de France, marathon running, uh, even track and field, where there are drugs that can boost your red blood cell count, like EPO, which is a synthetic hormone that increases the number of red blood cells in your body. That really benefits. So you can get a 10% output increase. Then you have other sports that are more motor skill sports. That would be like... Uh, ice skating, snowboarding, uh, skateboarding, surfing. Whereas those drugs like EPO aren't going to make it that much of a difference because you're sort of born with these innate skills. Yeah. And drugs that increase your 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 endurance aren't going to make that much of a difference. So you've got motor skill sports and endurance sports, mm. and drugs behave differently on athletes in those two categories. Yeah.
3: What about um, your book talks about? I mean, I'll just back up a little bit. It talks about the actual term doping. And my wife and I were sort of confused about it. Like, um, is doping different than substance abuse? Like is doping just when they transfuse bl- your blood back into your system or so talk a little bit about the actual phrase doping, yeah. how it started with horse racing Yeah. and, and, and Explain to the audience, is there a difference between – when you say doping or anti-doping, what yeah. exactly
1: does that mean? So the history of the term doping is, is really fascinating because although doping that is taking pharmaceuticals to increase your output or help you ride your bike longer was pretty – seen as very acceptable it, in human sports, in, sport, in horse racing, it wasn't. Why? Because what people were doing in horse racing is essentially using drugs – to harm the horse's output. So you would have a ringer in a, in a horse race and you would have these guys would essentially poison the horse with drugs so that he would lose. To slow him down. Slow him down right. and then somebody else with long odds would, would win. The horse racing industry did not like this at all because if people don't have faith in the competition, they're not going to lay down a bet. So they cracked down hard. And that's where the term getting the inside dope comes from. So you would essentially have spies that would hang around the stables and try and watch, see if somebody was doing something malevolent to a horse. So they would do some really cruel things, like they would drill drill holes in their ankles and stuff morphine up in it. And so if you had the inside dope, that means you knew which horse had been doped that is in poison to slow down ah, so yeah. that's one of the the origins of this so that form of doping was to slow down your performance in the human use it was used to increase your your performance yeah but as far as doping for performance enhancement i mean that doping is generally the term is, that is used to apply to using drugs or in the case of blood doping your own blood to increase your, your output. So it's sort of seen, today it's seen as in general terms as a negative. And is
3: blood doping EPO when you re- increase your red blood cells, is that blood doping or is a blood
1: doping full transfusion of new blood into your system? So there's three ways to get more red, red blo- blood cells into your body. And envision that your red blood cells are like little trucks bringing oxygen to your muscles. If you can get more trucks into your system, you're gonna be able to race your bike, or run longer and faster and harder three ways to do it one you can move to altitude perfectly legal you move to boulder colorado colorado springs medellin colombia your body is going to naturally compensate for the lower oxygen in the air by creating more red blood blood cells the other way to do it is through blood doping that's where you extract your own red blood put it in a refrigerator and then the day before the event you put it back in your body that was perfectly legal up until 1985 but due to a salacious Rolling Stone article that came out in early 1985 talking about the U.S. cycling team using blood doping at the 84 Olympics, it was in banned. The third way to blood dope is to use EPO, which is a synthetic hormone that sends a, mo- a message to your bone marrow to create more red blood cells. So three ways to do it. Altitude, EPO, or blood doping. Two of them are illegal. One is perfectly legal.
3: Okay. And so... Doping in general is either taking substance or doing a blood transfusion or using EPO.
1: Yeah, or anabolic steroids is some human growth hormone. Yeah,
3: really? Yep.
1: Um,
3: So basically, back in the day, it was okay for athletes to use whatever science provided them. And the public was like, good for you. You should do this. This makes tons of sense. This isn't. There's no conventional wisdom that says, oh, that's evil. There's no like, you know, moral code that's been put on it, right? When did that change? When did the general public say to itself, hey, you know what? This isn't really healthy. Or maybe
1: it is healthy. I don't know. I mean, there had been some doubts throughout the first 100 years of sports. Like, is taking all this drugs good? Uh, but they weren't. Overarching, I mean, really, particularly in pro sports, the objective is, of pro sports is twofold: it's to entertain people and make money. That's it. It is not to serve as some sort of moral teacher. And no you, wonder Coubertin didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and and in the Olympic Charter, really, for up until the 1970s doping, the, the there were very mild bans on doping, but it was couched in a long section on these are all the things you need to do to maintain your amateur status. Blood doping was frowned upon in the Olympics because it was a pro act, not because it was inherently evil. It was because it was inherently professional. So at the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome is really begin where the worm began to turn because a Danish cyclist died during the 100-kilometer time trial. That's where you have four cyclists on a team going for 100 kilometers against the clock. And he died, hit his head. Well, he hit his head uh, due to heat stroke. They put him in a tent, which was an old uh, Italian army tent, and he essentially baked and died. We know today that that you can survive heat stroke very simply because after you suffer from heat stroke, you put somebody in an ice bath, and within an hour, they can be walking around. Autopsy didn't show that there were any, any drugs in his system, but basically the rumor got around that he had died because of amphetamines. As far as we know, all the research has been conducted and a lot of research has been done. There, that's a total myth. But that rumor
3: was based on basically 60 years of pro and the public going, hey, it's okay to use whatever you yeah. need to use. So this concept of, oh, yeah, they use drugs and it's fine. Speed was,
1: was the go-to drug for cyclists. Why? Not because it has, there's very little evidence that it has any physiological effect, but it has a very strong mental effect. It makes you, it masks pain and it makes you feel stronger. And so if you're seven hours into a stage of the Tour de France, you know, you take that Black Beauty or, or an injection of amphetamines, it's going to give you a sense of courage to get you over the line. So knowing this long tradition of cyclists using lots of speed, sort of that was the rumor that took place. So in 19... Uh, Sixty-two, the Council of Europe, which is this pan-European organization that sort of emerged after World War II. And was the Council of Europe sort of, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just wondering, was the Council of Europe, did it
3: hold the same sort of beliefs that Coubertin held as far as aristocracy and amateurism no, it, and a divide between professionals? Totally different. Okay. So this is
1: essentially... Uh, just governmental bodies. Governmental, governmental bodies, body. yeah. Trying to su- The notion what the Council of Europe was, rather than... Slaughtering each other on the battlefield, let's try and work things out before. And so they the Council of Europe put together a, a <clears throat> body of sports medicine doctors who had uh, three conferences to talk about the issue of doping in sport. And out of this came the conclusion that this long-standing practice in pro and Olympic sports is probably not good for the athletes.
3: And how did that come about? Like, just was, I mean, there's just a bunch of doctors on the thing and they're like, Hey, look, yeah, there's a bunch of doctors. This can't be good. Like, let's just like pull
1: the, like pull the covers off. And And these, these conferences, they were in, in Grenoble, France, Strasbourg, France, and uh, Madrid, Spain. They represent a real shift in how the medical community saw their role in interacting with athletes. Up until the early sixties, the doctor's role was to safely administer drugs. So that the athlete didn't harm themselves. So they can increase their output, but without killing themselves. After this, these conferences, all of a sudden the doctors... Were evil. No, the doctors <laughs> sort of became priests. They put on their priestly caravat and ah. started to say, we aren't just concerned with your physical health, but we're concerned with your moral health. We got to watch out for your spirit because you guys might harm yourself morally. It's a really radical shift oh, that's it'd be almost like you go to the dentist and the dentist says scott you know you really need to brush your teeth more off you need to floss and then you go to the dentist one day and he says you know scott you should probably start stop cutting off cutting off going to the whorehouses and start watching out for your moral <laughs> self. You're right. like, what? where'd this come from? And so, essentially, that's what happened. You've hap- been to my dentist. I mean, <laughs> you know my dentist well. Yes, you get uh, moral <laughs> as well as dental hygiene lessons. He goes to the same whorehouse as <laughs> me. So, I mean, who's so he yeah, that's, that's really what... I, and then also what, what also helped this shift was in the 1960s, because this really carried on throughout the 1960s, there became greater uh, governmental... And popular concern about basically pot smoking and acid dropping hippies. Right. So there was this larger context of right. maybe taking drugs isn't so good. And you certainly see that in the United States where the, the uh, Richard Nixon, basically one of the, the pillars of his, his re-election campaign was cracking down on drugs. And he started a drug enforcement agency. Basically his war on drugs – was a way to harness what we what he called uh, sort of this mass of, of Americans who were really repulsed by the the social revolution yeah, they, that was they, taking place. Okay, that's very yeah. interesting. So you have this larger questioning of doping in sport, along with a larger questioning of recreational drug use, at, and they at sort large. of began to commingle. They began to commingle totally. Amongst, yeah, yeah, and so that was that created the context for. Banning doping in in sports. Hmm. And then another thing that happened is in 1965 in France, uh, the Minister of Sport, Marie Georges Buffet, I believe her name is, was uh, a devout member of the Communist Party. And she was very concerned about pro cyclists. Why? Because she saw that the pro cyclists had to take drugs because the team managers and the team sponsors. We're making them do it, as well as organizers of these incredibly difficult events like the Tour de France. So she saw this was a matter of worker exploitation. She said the government has to get involved here. So in 1965, France, along with Belgium, made sports doping a criminal offense. So you could go to jail for doping. So that also helped was sort of fed into this demonization of doping is now all of a sudden the government is concerned about the personal behavior of, of pro athletes because France felt like they needed to protect these athletes who were being exploited.
3: So their feeling was um let's protect the labor market by creating criminal laws, legislation. But then they were putting these same people they're trying to protect into jail. As I guess just a um these are the ones that you don't want to be like, like as an example.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, one, one writer, I don't remember which French newspaper it was, but at the time said, you know, fear of the gendarme is, is good, a good tonic to stop someone from taking drugs. Okay. So fear they, of the, they, the, the, the laws were targeted both at the doctors and the managers. So basically uh, facilitating an athlete taking drug was also a criminal offense. It wasn't just focused on the, on the athletes because they knew they had, to, they had to go to the root cause, which was – you know the, the team owners and managers who wanted spectacular performances, as well as the Tour de France organizers who knew that by creating an increasingly difficult Tour de France, it creates an amazing gravi- uh, uh, galvanizing spectacle that people want to tune into every day and watch. yeah and so that French government stood, stepped in and and so at the 1968 Olympics, uh, doping was officially banned. and actually the first guy who got banned, who was busted for doping was i believe a pentathlete it was at the summer games who got busted for beer because he had drank in two beers to calm his nerves Wow! <laughs> and he tested positive <laughs> for alcohol <laughs> great moments in
3: beer drinking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brought to you by the Room podcast so that's really it in the 1960s well is- here's but, but here's what's interesting to me right it's because we've kind of missed this whole concept of Western thought, Western um, conventional wisdom is, okay, now you guys, we've all come together and putting substances into our bodies for the sake of being better is not, it's morally wrong. It's wrong for the labor market. It's wrong for a bunch of reasons. However, on the other side of the equation, right, after World War II, we basically have two winners, right? We've got the Western allies and we've got Russia. Yep. And after any war, when you have two winners, they become instantly the two enemies of each other. And And... Communist Soviet Union goes on this incredible campaign to just, like, be the experts at making their athletes the best in the world for nationalism.
4: Yep.
1: So at the same time as you have this this nascent birth of anti-dope, sort of, I would call them the anti-doping evangelists. Because they really were like missionaries showing up in Hawaii and all of a sudden telling the, the native Polynesians... You know, walking around naked and surfing—that is now—that's corrosive to your your soul and your spirit. You should put on 13 petticoats and go to church on Sunday. The natives, meaning pro cyclists and marathoners, like, what are you talking about, dude? We have done this forever, and we're not dying. We know how to take drugs. We know to—we're professionals. And so it was not well received by the athletes at all. They said, "Get get out of here, you—you moral scolds." So you have this this anti-doping missionaries gaining some traction in the 60s, but at the same time you have the Cold War warming up. And even more than the Soviet Union it was the East Germans who really perfected doping on an industrial scale. Today we think of doping as an act of sort of individual delinquency. It's Lance Armstrong cheating his way to seven Tour de wins doping is much more than an act of individual delinquency. It is an act of national commission and work. And there's no better example of that than what the East Germans
3: did. And frankly, they were great at it.
1: Like, oh. I mean, if you look at it, you're like, they did a really good job of it. Like, it wasn't like they were, well, I don't know. I'm
3: sure they killed some people. Maybe they weren't so great at it, actually, as, a, as I think back on it. But I mean,
1: speak about how efficient they were. So the East Germans had two reasons to put together, which was essentially a Manhattan project. To harvest gold medals. <laughs> what a great way to put it! They had an awesome One, they they were in a, they were the East, East Germany was an occupied state. They were occupied by the Russians, and they hated this because it was a real affront to a sense of German pride. And so they still, the Germans
3: and the Soviets had Russians had fought yeah, forever.
1: Exactly, yeah. and now all of a sudden you have East Germany. The, the Russians and came in and eviscerated their, their industrial capacity, and they were just this shell bleak shell. So the East Germans said, how can we reassert our pride? And they turned to the Olympic Games. They said, look, we're a small country, but we still have a lot of medical and technical prowess that we can use to to assert ourselves and say, let's make Germany great again by mopping up the field (laughs) in the Olympic Games. And they did it. (laughs) (laughs) And so what they did is they essentially took uh, the nation's uh, economic, medical, social and technological forces and focus them on creating great athletes. And one of the, re, one of the ways they did that was by creating these sports schools. or basically an elementary school. You would start – teachers would identify athletes who had talents for soccer, tennis, football, cycling. And then from there, they would go to sports schools where the best athletes would do nothing but train. In addition, in addition to that, the uh, athletes. Scott's just letting his dog out. Sorry, <laughs> dog goes on to a rabbit. Mm. How's that tea? It's good tea. Yeah, I it's hope a, it's substance free. It's it is substance free. It's milk <laughs> reserve oolong. Anyway, so, anyways, you, yeah, I'm sorry. They had so the East Germans put together this Manhattan project to mop up the field with gold mop up all the gold medals. And one of the things they did as part of this program is administer about 2 million doses every year of anabolic steroids into athletes. And they really focused on women because women naturally have a 1 to 8 ratio of testosterone to men. And so by giving women anabolic steroids, it essentially raises their natural testosterone level. And the German women were just killing the Americans, particularly because in, until Title IX came in, the Americans really were We did our him. own good job of putting the oh, women yeah. in their place. So, so the best speak. example is this woman, Catherine Switzer, who when she was a 19-year-old track athlete at, uh, in New York and she went to her college coach and said, Coach, I want to run Boston. Felix he said, no dames can run Boston. Wow. So we really frowned upon women. And, and the East Germans saw this and said, look, by doping our women and putting them in really exquisitely designed sports uh, sports management and performance enhancement programs, it wasn't just doping. It was weightlifting, training, yeah, just everything, diet, right? exquisite medical care. We were lived on campus. It was on kind of like the IMG of, of- – that era, you know, like it was just sports based. Exactly. Yeah. And these steroids was just part of a much larger system and it worked. I mean they the East Germans just dominated at, at, at the Olympics beginning the, from the 50s all the way up until really the East Germany fell.
3: So um, we've got East Germany dominating the gold medal count and we've got missionaries here in the late 60s starting to go, hey man, doping's totally bad and you shouldn't do it and um and where does that where does that lead us where where, how does the international olympic committee start to deal with these um what's the word i'm looking for these evangelists well
1: it was it was initially seen as a problem because the evangelism the IOC
3: was like god these guys are a pain in the butt Because they're creating crusaders. They're creating scandals.
1: Yeah. So a good example of that is in advance of the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, there were the Pan American Games in Caracas, Venezuela. And I think 15 athletes tested positive like in the first few days. Why? International athletes? Yeah, international Mm -hmm. athletes. One of them was an American. And... Why did they test positive? Because Hewlett-Packard had come out with a new drug testing device that could identify traces of steroids that had been consumed weeks, if not months, before. Before that, athletes could dope pretty freely and not get busted. So 15 athletes get busted at the Pan American Games. 12 of the American athletes who were there packed up their cleats and flew back to the U.S. They didn't even compete. Why? Because they knew they were doped, and they knew they were going to get busted. And did this make sensational journalism? It, it, it did. That, it was. I mean, it blew was. Up, right? It, it kind of blew up. And it was a big concern to the IOC, because going into the 84 Olympic Games, IOC did not want scandals. Uh, you know, at 76, you'd had the slaughter of the Israeli athletes in Munich. Yeah. In 1980, the U.S. and uh, Western nations boycotted the Olympics. They, in Moscow. Moscow, yeah. right? So you have two Olympic games in a row. That are basically disasters. Big disasters. Also, there were massive cost overruns at the Montreal Olympics. And so the IOC didn't want this stuff to happen, nor did the U.S. Olympic organization. So the IOC commission.
3: basically had three Olympics in a
1: row, 72, 76, and 80, which were yeah. public relations nightmares. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so they did not want this to happen again, nor did the organizers of the LA Games. So knowing that athletes had to dope to execute their craft, what the U.S. Olympic Committee did is they used the anti-doping lab that had been established at UCLA to test American athletes in advance of the Games. Of the 86, so they marched all their athletes before the Games through the testing lab at UCLA. Of the 86 American athletes who tested positive, 84 went on to compete, and <laughs> many of them won gold medal. You're medals. kidding. How so you ask, happen? well, how did that happen? Well, because they were unofficial tests. They were just informational. Oh. So basically, the U.S. and the IOC were using the so lab. So they could say, we
3: tested them, but we don't, no, we're not giving you the results. Or? No, they didn't even
1: say, we tested oh. them. It was just so that the athletes could make sure they could get all the stuff out of the oh, system before they competed. Hmm. So it was really seen – uh, these anti-doping Washington. missionaries, it, 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 they were seen as a threat to the economic viability of the Olympic Games, particularly in 84, because this is a crazy story. In 1978, Californians passed something called Proposition 13 due to this guy named Howard Jarvis, who's still around. God bless him. am <laughs> a big fan of his. Right. He's saying, we're, we're overtaxed. We got to clamp down on this, all this taxation. So this thing called Proposition 13 passed, which put a cap on property taxes. That was in June. In November, the citizen, the good citizens of Los Angeles put a referendum on the ballot that said, if this passes – you cannot use one taxpayer dime to pay for the Olympic Games because they had seen how the good citizens of Quebec had been sc- or, Montreal. or Montreal had yeah. been screwed at the Montreal Games. Yeah,
3: they'd been, they had to pay the tax burden on they the did, Montreal heavily. Games. Right, because traditionally
1: the way the IOC works is they come into a town, you bribe them in order to get the Olympic Games to come to your city, and that's, that's not hyperbole. Yeah. You literally bribe the IOC to get the Games to come to your town. It's the way it's always worked. It's well documented. And... And then do you, uh, they the IOC, basically says, takes. Yeah, your money. we'll come
3: to your town, but you got to pay for it. You yeah. got to build out of the infrastructure. The cost is on you, the yeah. city. Right. L. A. said, "Not going to happen to us." Uh, the IOC, based on this Prop. Thirteen, this anti-tax sort of um, revolt that was in the air in California. Yeah, and so this referendum passed, and
1: then that it said became- that
3: the city of Los Angeles wasn't going to pay a dime of tax. It was on- if
1: you <laughs> spend any taxpayer dollars to fund the Olympic games, you're going to jail. Right. So then the then uh, the L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee hired this guy named Peter Eubroff, who had made a fortune in tra- tra- as a travel agent. And the guy was a business genius. And he essentially said, well, look, I can't use taxpayer dollars to fund these games. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rent all that is good and great about the Olympics and its symbolism to multinationals. And that's how he funded the game. So. For one great example is traditionally Kodak Film had been the longstanding sponsor of the Olympic Games. The way it worked is that you said, all right, we're going to strike a deal with Kodak, $4 million, and you're going to be the Olympic sponsor. But every Olympic sponsor had to give an in-kind donation to a foundation, which exists to this day, that would fund uh, athletics for inner city kids in L.A. It's a great cause. Still Kodak drugged their feet. They only... Pitched in two million dollars for their in-kind donation. Uberoth gets Fujifilm on the phone and says, Yo, Fuji, how'd you like to be the Olympic sponsor? They're going like, well, Kodak's always been the sponsor. He goes, Yeah, but they're out of they're in breach of contract. Seven million bucks, inks the deal with Fuji, Kodak's out. And so Uberoth was a very savvy negotiator. He also managed to get a really big television contracts because up until nineteen eighty-four the IOC had been very reluctant to charge market rates for television rights for the Olympics because their concern was partly a hangover from their longstanding Olympic concern with amateurism. They didn't want the Olympics to be corrupted by crass commercialism. That goes back to Coubertin. It's It's the beginning. If you're a nobleman, you don't need to work for your money. You don't need to hang up Coca-Cola signs on your castle because you've already got money. Uberoth said, that's not going to work here anymore because I don't have any money to work with. So he starts to cut really big deals with uh, television networks, much larger than what IOC had done previously for the Olympic Games. The end of the LA Olympic Games, Uberoth uh, the Olympics turned a two, over a $260 million profit, which was truly mind-blowing. What does this mean for, for doping? Well, if you're McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Visa or Fuji or 7-Eleven, 7-Eleven paid for the velodrome in LA. You want your name to be associated with all that is good and great and shining about young, aspirational athletes, not doping scandals. So there's enormous pressure to not stop doping, but to stop doping scandals who would, that would therefore besmirch the brand, brand equity right. of your sponsors. So it was brand protection, not athlete protection. Totally. Yeah. And the crazy thing is is a lot of this stems back to Proposition 13 and Californians not wanting to pay taxes to fund the Olympic Games.
3: I'm going to name my next child Howard Jarvis. I
1: love that guy.
3: Well, that's fascinating. And and so um, this sort of brings us up to – I mean that that basically catches us up, right, with with where we are today regarding – um, or fill in the blanks. Am I missing something between yeah, so what, the 80s and the 90s? I mean, what happened? The
1: next big well, there were thing some that Deaths,
3: happened. right? There were some cycling deaths or something. I don't know. Well, I,
1: the the, the next big thing that happened that really gave anti-doping a lot of purchase, credibility, and bureaucratic stability uh, took place at the 1998 Tour de France, or something called the Festina scandal where a soigneur, these are basically helpers that work with teams, got busted crossing the French-Belgian border. Like hundreds of doses of steroids, uh, human growth hormone, EPO, and it turned into this huge scandal. And four teams withdrew from the Tour de France. The French police were literally going into hotel rooms and arresting athletes and marching them out. The IOC sees this and goes, this is a nightmare. The last thing we want is government police agencies arresting athletes at the Olympic but, Games.
3: Right. But these were pro-cyclers. Why yeah. did the IOC care? Well, I guess at this time had professionals yeah, so moved professionals into the, were allowed the to Olympic arena.
1: In, in right. 1988. So That's now right. these are the same guys who would be showing okay. up. But, but the IOC's real concern was that, look, this, this anti-doping movement – is potentially very dangerous to us because our job is not to crack down on doping. Our job is to put on the biggest sports spectacle in the world. They're an event management company right. who sells rights to sure. corporations. That's it. That's yeah. what they do. So in 1999, the head of the IOC, a guy named Juan Antonio Samaranch, who had previously been, uh, franco's right-hand man his sports minister in, in franco spain up until 75 was a jackbooted fascist he was indeed so he was perfect for running the ioc right <laughs> <laughs> he proposes this conference and basically it was a predetermined the outcome was predetermined the ioc was going to put together an anti-doping body that was going to to the ioc's umbrella and basically manage doping scandals Unfortunately, the conference, the the body that they envisioned was not the body that they got at the end of this four day conference, because essentially what happened is 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 a bunch of press people showed up at this conference because Juan Antonio Samaranch had been grievously injured due to a recent scandal that showed that the Salt Lake City Winter Olympic Games in 2002 ended up in Salt Lake City because of bribes. Right. Right. So So the IOC had very little credibility.
3: Right. And also. They were sort of a moving target now for the press. The Samaranch uh, guy in in particular, right? They're like, hey, let's, what is this doping thing they're doing? Let's go see what it's all about. And they started raising their hands and asking questions.
1: Yeah. And also you had a couple of members there. uh, uh, A member of the British Olympic body said, look, we really think doping should be stopped. And we're not going to stand for this charade. The United Kingdom believes that doping the, is wrong. Was the
3: UK's reasoning was it a moral reason, or I was, think it so. t-
1: was it a brand equity situation? I like, think it was moral. Uh huh. Yeah. So they
3: actually had some. Yeah, and man, then also this stuff's really killing people.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then another interesting part of that that conference was a guy named Barry McCaffrey, who was Bill Clinton's drug czar at the time. He gets up to the podium. General says, McCaffrey. General McCaffrey. Right. Yes. You see yeah. him today on the news. He's yeah. a pundit. Still around yeah. for sure. He gets up there and says, yeah, we're with the UK. This doping has to stop. Meanwhile, the IOC members are just rolling their eyes. Because back in the United States in 1998, you could buy anabolic steroids at your health food store. Because they're a nutritional supplement. And the supplement industry, maybe we'll get to this, is completely unregulated. So they're rolling their eyes. Here we got the U.S. lecturing us on stopping doping while they're selling frigging doping products over the counter to 16-year-olds in America. Anyways... Out of this conference came the World Anti-Doping Agency, which is an agency that's independent of the IOC, even though it's partially funded by the IOC. And its charter is to create the list of doping products that are banned that you can't take as an Olympic athlete, also communicate to the athletic uh, community, educate them about how to stay clean, and also to... uh, Sanction all the anti the dope testing labs that are around the world, and also to work with doctors to help educate them about how to keep their athletes clean. So they really the World Anti Doping Agency that was born in 1999 didn't exist until then. There was no global governing body. To- so
3: just you know, recently we've got this new bureaucracy or administration, if you will, which has mm-hmm. a bureaucracy attached to it. Which is the thing that the IOC and all the sports associations and agencies around the world look to yeah. to guide them through this uh, anti-doping the policies. Right,
1: and I think it's it's a good thing. So now, whether you're uh, a national body that's governing surfing, like ISA or USA Cycling, that's governing cycling in the U.S., you don't have to come up with your dope policy, own anti-doping policy. You say, look, we subscribe to WADA. It's uniform for It's everyone. uniform, right? right? There's no mystery, no right. shenanigans. Right. That's the list, and that's what you need to do to to stay clean.
3: And so th- this brings us to, look, the Olympics are coming up. Um, what is the – you mentioned the ISA, the International Surfing Association. So do you know what their position is on, on – well, I guess you just said it. Their position is we follow WADA's. Yep. We follow what
1: WADA recommends. Yeah, right. ISA is a signatory to the IOC, which is subscribes to WADA, and basically, the if you're an aspiring Olympic surfer, you need to go to the WADA website today and read up on what you need to keep out of your system. Do all professional um, leagues use WADA? No. So, for instance, Major League Baseball and the NFL.
3: What's their reasoning for not like joining the tribe, so to speak, of WADA believers?
1: Because the NFL's job, Scott, is to entertain you on Sunday <laughs> afternoon. They do a good <laughs> job of it. If
3: WADA gets in the way, to hell
1: with WADA. Right. And also because uh, the NFL and Major League Baseball have very strong unions. Right. Uh, and so yeah. maybe we'll get to this. It's
3: kind of fascinating that, that, that all of a sudden these labor unions who the French woman or the Belgian woman was French sort woman of trying to protect buffet, yeah. or help the proletariat, help the labor market is now, there sort of seems to be a conflict. Yeah. So there.
1: the NFL's union and, and major league baseball's union, when they were concerned because all of a sudden this, these anti doping missionaries are very intrusive, yeah. right? Oh, you got to pee in a bottle. They're showing up at your door at six in the morning. And this, this scene is a real violation of my workers rights. Right. I mean, look, if you're a, a FedEx driver, or an airline pilot, that's acceptable.
4: Yeah.
1: Like, I want my American airline pilot to be drug tested because I don't want him showing up high to fly yeah. my airplane. That, but for an athlete, particularly in sports like cycling, where they've always taken drugs, or an NFL, which really embraced anabolic steroids beginning in the 1960s, the San Diego Chargers were one of the first teams to embrace anabolic steroids in 1963 because they use it as part of their weight training program. Um, the idea of some busybody... Getting in the face of your athletes, that was very offensive for, for unions, particularly in the 1980s and, and 1990s when you know, they started to gain some strength. So that's why pro sports like baseball and NFL, right. that makes they're apart. But if you're a basketball player, for instance, who's going to the Olympics – you do need to uh, subscribe to the WADA standards. Because so, any,
3: any sport that's in the Olympics has yes. their own national governing body. For surfing, it's the ISA. For tennis, it's probably like the ITA or yeah. the U- or, or whatever it is. So, so you, have to, you have to basically adhere to WADA policy and procedure.
1: Yep. So, I mean, I, the ISA's position on doping is they're opposed to it on med- medical and ethical grounds. And uh, the ISA, is, ISA has stated that the use, possession and trafficking or even the encouragement that is a, a doctor or a coach saying, hey, dude, take some steroids, it'll help you recover from your room. They said that's that's no place in surfing. And I think surfing is in a particularly good place because it's 2020 and unlike cycling, surfing is not emerging from 150 years of tradition where doping has been an accepted part of becoming a better athlete. No, but like certainly granny. surfing
3: has an uh, as you know, Mark, a long lifelong surfer, has a, a
1: sort of an aura or a veil or some, some baggage, if you will, of drugs.: Yeah, and it's really interesting you bring this up because a couple of years ago I was in Jeffrey's Bay, and I was talking to, to um, Derek Hind about this book, and he said, "Oh, so you have a chapter on doping and surfing, right?" And I go, nah. And he was really bummed out. He goes, "Oh, there's such a rich tradition of surfers taking drugs." I go, "Yeah, but it's party drugs, you know. They're doing an eight ball of coke before their contest, but it's not performance enhancing. It's more party enhancing." Do you think cocaine's not performance enhancing? Well, I think it is until then it really isn't. Right. Yeah. Which is like <laughs> all drugs, really. I mean, you could I mean Well, EPO, I mean, EPO is very safe. Right. And it's not harmful under doctor supervision. Right. Uh, I'm going to get emails from people saying, oh, you're you pro are. doping. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, under a doctor supervision, it's EPOs. And so, fair and a, safe. Could, you,
3: could you argue that almost any drug is safe under doctor supervision? In other words, if there's a drug that's, that's not safe in a very minuscule amount, a doctor's going to say, don't take a minuscule amount. In fact, you can't yeah. take any. Theoretically,
1: yes. Yeah. But like anabolic steroids is the best example. So, no. A lot of gray area? No, it's just because athletes want a bigger boost. So the doctor says, Okay, take this much anabolic steroids. I go, Well, I want to get twice as much output, so I'm gonna take twice as much steroids. I mean then, against the doctor's orders. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. And then and then with anabolic steroids there are some really some severe medical complications and problems that can come out of abusing anabolic right. steroids. Cancer, all sorts of Pro- testicular problems with women i mean the east german women who were systematically doped you know those two million doses of anabolic steroids every year uh they were giving birth to children with severe birth defects uh the women would in there were trials in the late 1990s where essentially all this system was exposed mm. and some of the women describing the the medical issues that they suffered because some of these women were being doped at the age of nine, like little oh, girls wow. and they were not told it was drugs. They were just told it was, it was vitamins. So there were some really severe complications that come with stuff like anabolic steroids. If you're listening Is anybody to anybody your in
3: East Germany held accountable yeah. for some of this horror? Yeah. The, oh, there were
1: trials and some of them went to jail. Uh, not okay. as many as should have, but right. yeah. Huh. So have you spoken with um, my friend Fernando
3: Aguirre, um, basically the the, – what's the best way to describe Fernando? He's just – he's really been the champion of surfing, getting into the Olympics. I don't think surfing would be in the – in fact, I know that surfing would not be in the Olympics if it wasn't for the really hard work that Fernando Aguirre has done. Have you spoken with him about this book? Or obviously you haven't because you said there's no chapter on surfing. in it?
1: Yeah. No, I haven't. I, ho- I hope he reads it. Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a signal moment in, in surfing because really the, the burden is going to be on both the ISA and then the national governing bodies. So in the United States, it's USA Surfing. Yeah. Who they also subscribe to, to WADA. Right. Anybody who's uh, going to. out for the, the U.S. surfing team. Has to
3: stay clean, and this is really where we bring in the WSL because now at this level, right, we've got WSL surfers that are going to be in the Olympics. Yes, yeah. but it doesn't seem like. I mean, my gut feeling is that because surfing is not necessarily an endurance sport, right. I don't sense that there's going to be any major issues. Quite frankly, and, and and I and I look at the top surfers. I look at John John Florence. I look at and Dino, I look at Griffin Colapinto. Now, I can't speak for them, obviously,
1: but my gut feeling is, is that these are just clean, healthy American kids
3: that are hot surfers. Like, is that how yeah. you feel
1: about it? Partly, is- it is because surfing is a motor skill sport. You, know, yeah. you can give me all the dope in the world, and I'm not going to be able to surf like John John. Yeah. Maybe you can, but… No, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. Right? But can guys do bigger aerials? Because well, that. that's that's where a, a few athletes, a couple of Brazilian guys, have got busted for doping steroids. Oh, really? Yeah. So steroids could be a here's a where good steroids thing. can work for motor skill sports. So you go into the weight room, particularly surfing power. Yes, for
0: makes sure makes so much
1: difference. For sure. So you can go into the weight room, do a really hard workout, take steroids after, and it's going to help you recover. And essentially, what the steroids do is they allow you to push yourself to higher levels of fitness quicker than athletes who are not taking anabolic steroids anabolic steroids essentially help you develop muscles faster right in fact in the 1950s anabolic steroids were originally developed because they were seen as something that could help people who who suffer burn victims Uh something could regenerate tissue also Uh was seen as maybe something could help people who were suffering from things like cerebral palsy it was seen as a so there was, up.
3: there was medical reasons for the, yeah, for in the, the creation US, of anabolic
1: steroids. Yeah, it was, in the U.S., it was a guy named John Bosley Ziegler who actually encouraged the U.S. weightlifting team to start using these steroids because he was a World War II victim. I mean, uh, he had suffered injuries in right. World War II, uh, right. and he hated the fact that the commies were mopping the floor with the, his American boys. He said, you guys start using this new wonder drug, and maybe it will help you. Uh, so
3: from surfing standpoint, the, the anabolic steroids can make you stronger. Yeah, and so they give you more power its, too. I mean, you could get bigger muscles in your legs. Yep. you know, bigger paddling muscles. Yeah, so work I'm, out harder and recover faster. So I think. And so Brazilian, there's some Brazilians you mentioned. Who are they on here or somewhere? Yeah,
1: in it? 2005, guy Necco Oh yeah, Neko
3: Poteritz. Yeah, like he, a he very got famous surfer.
1: He got busted for steroids at in Hassigor, and uh, he was suspended. And in 2011 – Did
3: Neko have – does Neko have a – I hate to throw Neko under the bus here without giving him an opportunity. Is there any um, – does anyone know that – did he have any retort to this?
1: Did he just lay down and go, yeah, I did it? Or do we know that? Or? I don't know. Hmm. I we just know that he that. was suspended. And then in 2011, a guy named Mark Richardson from Australia, he won the Masters So the ASP
3: suspended patterats.
1: That would have been it, right? Yeah. Okay. 2005. Interesting. And then in 2011, this guy from Australia tested positive for marijuana. And so he lost his world. Marijuana? <laughs> marijuana. It's on that the, seems it's on- like
3: marijuana would ruin you on a surf contest.
1: <laughs> I know. <it's> <laughs> Take performance- it from
3: somebody I know very closely. I don't think marijuana is a, a performance-enhancing drug. Do you?
1: No. And, in fact, there's a super funny uh, Robin Williams skit where he's talking about performance-enhancing drugs. And he's yeah. laughing about the fact that weed is banned. Yeah. Because the only way that weed could be a performance enhancing drugs if 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 you had swimmers smoke it before a competition and then put a Snickers bar on the other end of the pool. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned that though because I was at I gave a keynote speech at a uh, sports medicine conference in New Zealand last year. And there was a representative for World Anti-Doping Agency there and the question came up about marijuana. And Wada is actively looking at should we remove this product from our banned substances, particularly as it's becoming legal in yeah. more places like the great state of California, Go California.
3: Right, Howard Jarvis. <laughs> yes so lower that,
1: taxes and more weed in california but anyway so they're looking at removing marijuana. what is your feeling
3: do you think marijuana should be a, a drug that should be removed from the list i think so yeah. i i think uh, i mean it seems like it's only getting stronger the strains of it. it's only going to make yeah. you worse of a, a, yeah. a worse surfer yeah right yeah stoners are not good i do afterwards. not see how that can make you a no. better surfer. It, 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 and it might you might enjoy it recreationally perhaps more yeah. in some weird way but yeah. So I mean, this it, poor it, guy, Mark Richardson in Australia in twenty eleven tested positive for marijuana. Yep. And it and says then, here yeah. in my notes that he was stripped of a yep. gold
1: medal. And then in two thousand fifteen, the WSL banned a guy, another Brazilian guy named Roni Montier. Brioni, Montiero. Rony yeah. Montiero for twenty months, okay. And he tested positive at the Pipe Masters. Now he owned up with he owned up. He said, Look, my doctor gave me something that had had uh banned substances in it. It was my fault. And uh he said it was unattended, and uh, he said there are rules to follow, and I broke them, so good on him, yeah, so he owned, he owned it. up to so his
3: doctor so this kind of brings up this concept of of over the counter um, what are they called supplements, over, supplements. nutritional Thank supplements you. nutritional supplements because these things don't have any FDA approval. We literally do not know what the hell is in these things. I mean, there might be a list of ingredients, but, I mean, even if you could read it or pronounce it, you're not going to really know. And even then, there's not, there's gonna be, there could be stuff in there that, you, that isn't even on the list. Scott, let me because tell you this. nobody's
1: combed through it. Right. Let me tell you this right now, Scott. If yeah. you're planning on making the 2020 Olympic team, you're going to beat, probably beat Colony out. Colo, Kilo- because you're yeah. clearly a better surfer. I've seen you air. No. You can Kilo- do bigger airs. <laughs> no, <in>. I do <laughs> not do airs. I do bottom turns. That's all anyways. I do. If you're going for the team, you need to stop taking nutritional supplements today. And that goes to every, sur- every surfer that hopefully listens to every this. Every Olympic athlete. Why? Because nutritional supplements are totally unregulated, particularly in the United States. And because nutritional sub- supplements, there's a massive body of empirical data that suggests that all nutritional supplements do is take money out of your pocket and put it in the toilet in the form of expensive urine, because they don't do anything. It's more of a placebo effect. And because they don't do anything, a lot of nutritional supplements are laced with steroids that do do something. And because it's completely unregulated, the supplement manufacturers can get away with it. So, is this something, do you think that Rayoni Montiero, it says his doctor
3: gave him something. I mean, I guess if you have an injury, a doctor's going to go, hey, a steroid's going yeah, to totally. help you build
1: muscle mass quicker and you're going to get healthier quicker. Totally. And that in seems that case. That kind of legit too. Like what's wrong with that? Yeah. And what he, if that's what would happen, if he had been administered a steroid to help him recover, he needed to get what's called a therapeutic use exemption. So just because you're an Olympic athlete doesn't mean you, you are suspended from getting modern medical care. But you have to go through a series of steps. Said, oh. okay, this athlete's had this injury in order you just to recover, need a doctor's note, basically, and you need to get it approved uh-huh. by your governing body in the World Anti-Doping Agency. Okay. You just can't get it because right. it's it's something that's rife for uh, it's rife with abuse. Right, people are. I mean, yeah. cycling is, is. Here's my doctor's full. note. <laughs> yeah. Like in right. 1999, Lance Armstrong had was got busted for drugs in his system, and he pulled up a a uh, uh, note from his doctor said, oh, I was been prescribed this. It was a total scam, but that's right. how he got away with okay. it. So anyways. But back to your
3: thing, because that's very important, I think, for surfers that are going to be, even yeah. in the future, trying to be on the ISA teams or whatever. Yeah. That supplement, over-the-counter supplements, take them at your own risk. It's quite possible that because these supplement companies, they want to outdo each other. I mean, they're right. racing for your dollar. Yeah. And so if you throw a little steroid in one yep. of them, you're going to feel a lot better than that other guy's supplement. So I'm going to buy this supplement. Right. Unbeknownst to you, you feel better because there's something in it that you didn't know was and in it.
1: And it. it can also be something that the, even the supplement manufacturer might need, might not be a malevolent effort on their part. Because a lot of times, these supplements are being manufactured and packaged in China – and so your machine that was just packaging pills full of anabolic steroids can then be then be used to package your multivitamin. And so a tiny oh, trace man. of steroids can end up in your multivitamin. And there's been a number of studies. where They have done blind studies where they go to Target and uh, Whole Foods and, and Walmart and buy masses of, of supplements and they test them again and again. One-third of those supplements have stuff in them that is not on the label. So if you're an aspiring Olympic athlete and you're taking supplements, man, you are playing Russian roulette. It's Because
3: I often hear of the Major League Baseball players going, hey, I was just taking an over-the-counter supplement and I tested positive and it's not my yep. fault. And I've always sort of looked at it like, come on, dude. But Some now s- in many cases, it probably is true that they were just taking whatever you know, Joe blows over the
1: counter. and Sometimes it's a dodge. Sometimes it's legit, but even if it's legit, according to the World Anti-Doping Code, there's one person who's responsible for what's in your body. It's not your doctor. It's not your supplement manufacturer. It's you. Cool. So if you get busted for something that you didn't know was in your – it's still your butt. How –
3: how – Strong is the marketing effort on, like, the ISA or even any of these national governing bodies regarding telling their athletes this about over-the-counter supplements. Like, don't be stupid. You take one and you're putting your whole scene in jeopardy. Do do they do a good job, do you think, in your opinion? I I don't don't think so.
1: I don't think so. Uh, I mean –
3: This seems like it would be some sort of, like, T-shirt, you know, like they would (laughs) have have bumper stickers out there. Like, you would know this, you know.
1: Well, in the case of the 2002 Winter Games in Salt Lake City, the Winter Games were sponsored by supplement manufacturers because Salt Lake City is sort of – they call it the cellulose valley. It's it's where – it's the heartland of the supplement industry in the United States, and they were big sponsors of the 2002 Salt Lake City Games. Uh In fact, you had Olympic athletes with supplement maker logos on their uniforms oh my at God. the Salt Lake City Games. I thought
3: they didn't allow that. And I thought on your uniform. I mean, obviously they do, but that's that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so they are right in the middle of it all. Yeah. So if
1: you're a major sponsor who's, who's, who's throwing money at the U.S. Olympic team to help yeah. our athletes win gold medals, yeah, you want, some, you want some publicity. So in the future, you need to be an FDA-approved corporate sponsor or you
3: can't be involved if – You know, I mean, yeah, you can be Chrysler, but you can't be Joe blows over the counter supplement company unless you've got FDA approval. That's the only way you know that it's clean stuff.
1: Right. And no supplements are FDA approved. I mean, every time there's been an effort to put supplement, the supplement industry under the FDA umbrella, it's been shot down, mainly at the behest of a Utah senator named Orrin Hatch, who is a big proponent of unregulated supplements. Go America. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's an interesting thing, right? Because I would imagine that, you know, Orrin Hatch is probably arguing, hey, you know, I don't know. What is Orrin Hatch arguing? How can you, his, how can you argue that
0: you shouldn't ar- have
3: FDA approval of these supplements his, that are causing – could his,
1: potentially cause – His argument is that taking supplements is a way to reduce medical expenses for Americans – I think it's total BS because supplements don't do anything. So it's basically saying if, if we can allow our Americans to take herbs and supplements instead of pharmaceuticals, we're saving every, everybody money. But it's – there's, so there's, he
3: must be in the supp- The supplements oh, totally. must be in his war chest, and the, yeah. the pharmaceutical companies must hate Million,
1: him. They give millions. Of, supplement industry gives millions of dollars. Okay, so attach. now we've got
3: politics involved in this, which makes sense. That's that's probably been the case for a long time, actually. Yeah.
0: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: But the the, the nut of it is uh, aspiring Olympic athletes should not be taking supplements. Well, you,
3: you mentioned that you didn't... Um you didn't do a chapter on surfing in your book. And really that's why we're talking. This is a great opportunity for you, for us to kind of flesh this out. What is the WSL stance on WADA and on doping? And where do, obviously we see here that they've banned Rayoni in 2015 for 20 months. And when it was the ASP in 2005, NECA was suspended. And in 2011, which I believe was still the ASP at that time, Mark Richardson for marijuana, um, where do you know where the WSL? Maybe I should reach out to yeah, Dave so, Prodan
1: and those guys and see if they have. A- so the the WSL in two thousand sixteen, in um, two thousand eighteen, February <coughs> put out an anti doping statement, and it, and it really mimics uh, other Olympic bodies saying our goal is to eradicate doping in the sport of professional surfing. Why? Because they want to create a fair playing field. That is, where some guys aren't cheating by taking steroids to get stronger and do more powerful bottom turns and top yeah. turns and to create an impartial environment. So it's unbiased, but also interestingly in their statement, they said they want good surfers to be good role models, which is really interesting because pros, the, the objective of a professional sport is again, to entertain and make money, not be moral paragons, Right. The pros, that may be something that's placed on them, but it's not part of their charter. And th- this is one of the fundamental tensions that all- has always riven pro sports. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you guys, re- your job... It's to entertain us by pushing the boundaries of human performance. And in NFL sports, like NFL and baseball, they said, "Look, if you're using drugs to do that, go for it." It's like Keith Richards, man. We don't judge Keith Richards for taking drugs. He puts on an incredible show, (laughs) and we'll flop down two hundred bucks to go watch that show, right? (laughs) But But as a parent,
3: as a parent, as a parent of surfers, I know your kids surf, right? Yeah. Do don't you think that you want them looking to?
1: you know, the colohes of the world and yep. going, hey, that's cool that he's never tested positive. And that's, that's a great question because when I give talks about this book, a lot of times people come out and they say, well, are you pro-doping? Because right? this, this, the history of doping is so stricken with hypocrisy and, and pe- payola. It's just rotten. Yeah. And I don't believe that we should encourage doping in sport because to me, that would be modeling – Olympic sports and professional sports after American society at large. Whereas a society at large, we have said the first line of defense in any ailment, physical or mental is more pharmaceuticals, drugs are better living through more drugs, right? Whether it be Viagra or Adderall to help you study. And I don't think that's good. I think going out and surfing and eating more fruits and vegetables is a much better way to be a healthy person. And I have one kid who's 18. He's a hardcore mountain biker. And if he said, Dad, you know, I want to become a pro, I would have a real problem with, all right, in order to do that, we got to hook you up with a doctor and get you on the program. Get you on some? Do, do, do you think professional
3: mountain biking has the same issue that the Tour de France Pro Cycling has?
1: Not as bad in certain disciplines. So cross-country, which is more of an endurance yeah. sport. Yeah. Uh, the downhillers, no, because they're more like just crazy big wave surfers. Yeah. That's just all fearlessness yeah. and technical yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as I think that's where surfers should serve as role models and discourage kids from taking drugs. The
3: interesting thing is, is that now that we have WSL surfers that are going to be in the Olympics, the WSL certainly doesn't want one of their guys to test positive. Right. In the Olympics, because it's going to look bad on the WSL, even though they really don't have too much to do with it, other than they just happen to have the best surfers in the world on their tour, who also now coincide with performing and competing in the Olympic Games. You would think that they now would say, hey, WSL surfers, the Olympics are next year. Please understand that if you're taking any over-the-counter supplements, it could look really bad if you test positive. Yep. It's going to look bad on our brand, look bad on your yes. brand, which by the way, these individual sports, these these surfers are brands in and of themselves, yeah. like LeBron James and Kolohe and John John and these guys. So, I'm I'm hoping that I mean it would be for the benefit of the WSL if they kind of got this message that you and I are now sort of in a weird way we're sort of now going, "Hey, here's the message of this podcast. Drop the supplements." If you take supplements, you're rolling the dice. Yeah. And really for no, there's no upside.
1: Yeah. And I think, thankfully, there haven't been any huge doping scandals yet in surfing. Uh, But I mean, the good thing is is that surfing is starting from scratch. It doesn't have 150 years of doping tradition that is now saying, all right, you surfers have been taking speed or or, uh, steroids for the last 50 years. Now you need to stop it. It's fresh so that surfing can start out with the expectation that performance-enhancing drugs are not part of surfing culture and they're not going to make you a, a, a better surfer. I mean, obviously, recreational drugs. I read a couple books. I read um, Chas Smith's book about cocaine and yeah. surfing. Yeah. And then I also read um, Nick and Tom Carroll's book about yeah. Tom Carroll. Yeah. And, you know, Tom Carroll was, was addicted to methamphetamines and – those by reading those books, I said really surfers, at least according to those accounts, weren't taking drugs to be better surfers, they were taking drugs to party yeah, harder to get high. So, and that's maybe. not going to make you a better Olympian, no, no. it's, it's going to give you a worse not. hangover,
3: right? <laughs> right, or a better competitor on any level, whether it's yeah, the I mean, maybe, or the maybe WSL, I mean, competitive surfing, yeah. and those things.
1: I mean, with with stimulants like like cocaine, cocaine is or meth, or meth, yeah, I mean, uh amphetamines were first synthesized in 1928 and they became commercially available in 1933 as a benzodrine inhaler and they were quickly adopted by cyclists uh, but I mean as far as surfers doing a line before the paddle out I, it's not gonna make that much of a difference
3: except if you test positive yeah what, it's gonna harm you what are how does the testing for water take place like when do they go okay uh, uh usa surfing who are your surfers give us the list of their names can they test them whenever they want can can these guys get tested tomorrow Do, what are the pr- procedures regarding that
1: so the the way it works is if you're a signatory to wada which isa is uh any of your athletes can be tested in competition or out of competition and they don't have any say in when then that can take place uh and if you does the has the I'm sorry to interrupt, but has the
3: ISA established who their surfers are yet? Like in other words, it seems like it would be beneficial to not tell WADA who your surfing team is until as, as late as possible. When is the when do they have to go? Here's our team, WADA.
1: You can now test them. You have a year to test them. Like when is that? Do you know when that is? I don't know, uh, but I do know that the ISA is. Conducting tests now. So, for instance, between January 2016 and June of 2017, the ISA conducted 85 tests. Uh, 13 were out of competition, so that means they just show up at your door in the morning, say, pee in this bottle. And 72 were in competition, and they used anti doping labs in the USA, France, and Belgium. And 85 of those tests were urine, and and, uh, zero were blood. According to the ISA, there were no positives. However, The World Anti-Doping Agency also publishes a list of of test results. And according to the World Anti-Doping Agency, in 2016, there were two surfing doping violations. But they don't attach names to them to preserve the privacy of of the athletes. So ISA is is doing some testing today. There's also – How do
3: we make sense of the ISA saying there's zero and WADA saying there's two? Like where
1: is the discrepancy? That's a good question. How come – yeah, I don't know. That's weird. That's a, that's a very good question to be worth looking up. But there's also something called a registered testing pool. And that's where essentially the, the governing body for a sport looks at some of the top performers and says, you guys can be randomly tested anywhere, anytime. And also, you guys need to report, or women, because it's also women, your whereabouts 365 days a year. So literally they have to go onto a website and says, today I'm in San Diego, tomorrow I'm in Huntington Beach. And this testing pool is for all No, it's for a select pool of athletes and not randomly? All of them. Did you say random? No, no, they typically focus on the top athletes. Oh so the, really? winners, the, the winners. The winners have to do this geographic location. Here's yep. where I am. So what I don't know is are are the surfers, are there any surfers who are in this testing pool as a wada signatory Technically, the ISA should have a number of athletes in this testing Would pool. It, does every sport have an, at every least un- one athlete in the testing pool? If, every sport. If, if you're a like- signatory to WADA, yes. Okay. You should have. You should be complying with this. Um, but we don't know, and part of that is it's preserve both the an- rights of the athletes and yeah. the anonymity. Yeah. Because if the if you know who's going to be tested, the the the, the objective of this testing pool and this sort of twenty four hour day surveillance is that element of surprise right so if you're killing it and winning as a pro cyclist they go there's a higher probability that this guy is doping right so let's make sure we're monitoring these guys they're real human rights issues though Oh, like for this. sure it's like all right now i got to report my whereabouts 365 days a year basically wada has said yeah you're guilty yeah. until proven innocent this you got is to a pro-
3: fascinating concept here that they've really opened up some major issues yeah, Human I mean rights it's rights.
1: it's it's a testament to the strength of the World Anti-Doping Agency and and how much traction anti-doping missionaries have gained in right. order to try and purify the sport from 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 doping. So yeah, uh this this anti anti this testing pool there should be some pro surfers in it and oh. should be randomly tested and have to be report their whereabouts. They're We're real not talent- pro surfers, but the surfers that are the best according to the ISA. Yeah. Right. Exactly for the the under that governing body,
3: right. it creates. But we t- don't really know who they are as far as the the U.S. team. Like the U.S. team, I don't think they've determined who the who the U.S. surf team is yet. Yeah. In fact, right now, I think in France or somewhere this soon coming up, they're having the first. It might even be in Japan. I think it's in Biarritz. but they're having the first, um, you know, trials for the U.S. team. Yeah. So our top guys couldn't be
1: in some testing pool yet. Right. I don't think. Yeah. And particularly for a sport like surfing where you don't have a tradition of, all right, these are the contenders who are going to become part of the Olympic team in, in cycling, for instance, we know who the best American athletes are. And you know, there's probably 30 pro cyclists who are all in contention to make that Olympic road team. And so they're being tested. They're already being tested because they're pro cyclists anyways. Uh, but that's something that surfers, a burden that some surfers will have to assume to in order to, to surf in, in the Olympics. I wonder
3: if there's some weird cultural anomalies. Like you go to Fiji and you have a kava ceremony and you don't even think about it. And you come back and you test positive for kava or some part of kava that's in the – You're out. You know, like that's a weird one too. You really have yeah. to watch what your intake is.
1: Yeah, I mean surfers who are going to – looking at making the Olympic team have to be very careful about their – Personal behaviors. I mean, the other thing about this testing pool is it create it's expensive, right? Because you've got to f- so say somebody's at J Bay or they're in Tahiti, you got to fly two testers out there oh. to show up in front of their shack and say pee in a bottle.
3: Yeah, but I bet that's probably the cost of that's probably negligible to this. This water seems pretty powerful. I'm sure they have money.
1: Well, the problem is 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 that the governing body for each nation is responsible for running those those tests. Oh, so it's so on. I think Russia is the best example because we've seen that this Russia was systematically and probably still is doping their athletes. Yeah. I mean that was part of Putin's effort to Recom- Putin looks doped. <laughs> Re- <laughs> Let's be fair. He's got a his, red
3: face. He's yeah. on Viagra or something.
1: That was part of his post-Cold War effort to make Russia great again. It's like, I'm going to systematically dope my athletes, and I'm also going to rig the Russia, Russian anti-doping agency, which is their anti-doping agency, which is actually being used. To test to, positive, to, to test clean. I mean. Yeah, to yeah. allow their athletes right. to, to, to test clean. So they're responsible for doing this. So it's a little bit of the fox watching the hen house. And no doubt.
3: Yeah. That's interesting. And also,
1: um, in my book, I talk about with nation states being responsible for funding their anti-doping programs, um, when there is a disincentive to take down the heroes that make your country great. Yeah. Why? Would,
3: you, know, you shouldn't. You, you wouldn't. Shouldn't, you, right. Why?
1: That's yeah. what was kind of so amazing about the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency aggressively going after Lance Armstrong and taking him down partly yeah. is because cycling is still a relatively obscure sport in the U S yeah. and so it probably would have been less likely if it was that a Tiger football star or, or tire woods, it yeah. would have been taken down. Whereas yeah. uh, USADA could take Lance down. Now um, real quick, I'm looking at
3: this list of 2016 world anti-doping agency, adverse analytical findings. This is, all rather boring from a podcast point of view. But we can me, make it exciting though. Let me get to the point is that in surfing, in 2016, according to WADA, in surfing, there were three surfers that
1: had something in their system, had that, something
3: in their system that they shouldn't have had. And yeah. of those, two of them were busted.
1: Yeah. So the, the way it works is there's adverse analytical findings. That basically says you get drug tested and something shows up in your system that shouldn't be there. That doesn't mean you're guilty. You still have presumed innocence because you could say, oh, here, I've got a therapeutic use exemption. Right. There could be a legitimate reason for this to be in your system. Right. But once you go through an investigation and say, no, man, you really were taking something. Advertently or inadvertently, you should have been. You're busted. So that's where it becomes a rule violation. And in, in 2016, there were two people who were busted. Now, good so question. Is- of
3: three, there were two that were positive. And then I look at like endurance sports like um, track and field or mid and long distance running or marathons. There was f- basically 400 that tested with something in their piss. Yep. And of those, less than half, 169, were positive. Yep. Now, it's really hard to extrapolate three to two for surfing. Like, am I going to suggest to you that of 30, pot um something in your urine 20 of those were yeah it's, i, th- I it think it's hard
1: to extrapolate but i think the what's useful here is because the question is well how does surfing compare to other sports in terms of the amount of doping that's going on Well, we don't know yet because we don't have a lot of a big historical body of evidence that's
3: probably the most important fact here yeah. we really can't make an assumption based on these numbers
1: but what you can make assumption from these numbers is that doping is still rampant in Olympic sports. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah, it's so everywhere. Athletics, Bodybuilding,
3: was, cycling.
1: Yeah. With cycling, there was 273 guys in 2016. Well,
3: right? here's the thing. In all of sports, right? The bottom one. In all of sports in 2016, there was 3,032 positives in yeah. somebody's urine.
1: And the funny thing is, or well, not funny. It's kind of tragic. WADA, in 2013, did an investigation to... Say their own efficacy. How good of a job are we doing? And what they came up and said: Look, we're only catching two percent of the athletes that are doped. We're bad at what we do. And if we throw out the athletes who are testing positive for pot, marijuana, we're only getting one percent. So why that are was, we here? <laughs> That's
3: what they got to ask well, themselves, right? It,
1: it was not so much that as just how do we do a better job? Uh-huh. And it is a very difficult question because how do you do a better job without putting together a, a full-on surveillance a thing. Yeah. Totally fascist
3: thing. And particularly and a, and a in a deeper question, maybe not deeper, but on a different note is you and I as consumers, do we really even give a shit? Like when, cause, cause what's happened now is the, Olymp- the Olympics are no longer this amateur ideal. The Olympics are pro sports. Yeah. And so if, as you mentioned, pro sports have two things, what are they again? Make money
1: and entertain Scott Bass. The
3: Olympics do that. And I don't really, I'm not. No. I mean, there's this whole equation of why not just let everyone do whatever the hell they want to get rid of water. You can use as much as you want. You might die in a year. So be it. Like yeah. this libertarian ideal around
4: it.
1: Yeah.
3: What is your thought on that?
1: Bad idea think for our what, kids, for our youth? I think it's a bad practice to encourage 15-year-olds to start doping in order to practice their craft. A, for sure. But based on evidence and what fans have shown through their their – Attendance habits and television watching habits, they don't care. So a good example is during the nineteen nineties. There was a huge home run battle between Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa. Right? They were doped to the gills. Uh, it came out that they were they were using drugs and there were congressional hearings. We need to clean up baseball. These guys are bad role models for high school athletes who are also taking steroids because they want to emulate their, their dance. Did people stop watching baseball when they knew that these guys were doped? No. People tuned into baseball like never before because the show was killer. Right, I know. It was, it was silly. Second basemen were hitting like 30 home runs. You're like, what? Yeah. So <laughs> while, people, while the fans might have said, ah, oh, these guys need to stop taking drugs, uh, their behavior suggested otherwise is like, yeah, well, we may say one thing, but we do another. So, right. yeah, I don't think fans really care. There's a
3: hypocrisy on our end, on the end users, on the consumers, really. You For know? sure.
1: In fact, I, I interviewed uh, Travis Tigart, who's the head of U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. He's the guy who really took down Lance Armstrong. I asked him, I said... Isn't this kind of hopeless? Because you are trying to create this little garden where athletes don't get to take the drugs. And yet the world around us is awash in drugs. And he said, yeah, it is, Clark. In fact, he goes, I can sit down with my kid and watch a baseball game, and they're advertising performance-enhancing drugs like Viagra on television. So what society at large is encouraged to do, we're telling athletes they can't do. And so there's, there's a, a real dissonance there because we're saying athletes well no these drugs are going to corrode your soul and, and they're going to kill you but meanwhile we've got six and a half percent of american kids between the age of four and 17 on amphetamines adderall is speed and we're doping kids so they can do better in school and focus
3: and your book brings out a really interesting point about those that are trying to pass the sat and you get this exemption if your kid is Diagnosed with ADHD. Yep. What is it? ADHD? ADHD. Attention deficit. Yeah. If you're diagnosed with this, you get unlimited time in the SAT. So, so teachers are going to, or parents are going to their doctors and going, "Hey, wink, wink, nod, nod. Give yep. my kid an ADD diagnosis so I can get extra time in the SAT." So this, I mean, I think no other example really sort of like pushes this blister to the forefront like that one, the one, that, and, and you know, yeah. that speaks to what you're talking about, that our culture is just surrounded by this, do
1: whatever you need to do yep. to get ahead. And the kids get more time to take the test and they get drugs too. They get both now to be, to be That's why careful, I didn't
3: do good on the SAT. <laughs> by the way.
1: I'm just saying you had the wrong doctor. I'd still stuff. be in that room. <laughs> <laughs> now to be clear, uh, Drugs like Adderall and Ritalin can truly be transformational and life-saving for kids who really do have a diagnosis of attention deficit. But unfortunately, the minute you have that uh, a restorative drug that is a drug that is used to get someone who has a deficiency back up to the normal state – people who don't have the deficiency said, I'm going to use the same drug as an additive drug to make me better than normal. And Which that's is what
3: it. the anabolic steroid was yeah. like. I mean, it does build muscle mass for burn victims or whoever. And, yeah. but once we, it's just, it's just an amazing gray
1: web, you know, of, of morality. Yeah. And athletes and their, and their doctors and their uh, national organizing bodies are onto it. I mean, EPO was still in clinical trials in the mid 80s and cyclists were already using it because they you know this stuff is a miracle drug. I ahead can, of the game. Yeah, if I can get the same effect of blood doping without having to move to Boulder or, or Colorado Springs, give me it. Yeah. Yeah, they were onto it. And it's still happening today because- Have you ever used EPO? No. Because you're a cyclist. You're an yeah, avid, I raced bikes for 25 cyclist. years, yeah. but I was just an amateur and then really didn't have any interest. But yeah. if I had gone pro- yeah, the, everyone I mean, else in is. In the 90s. That's what yeah. you do. If you're that's in this
3: you game, do. you got to be in the game. Right? And,
1: and also, uh, one of the best books I think that's ever been written about doping and cycling is Tyler Hamilton's book. It's called The Secret Race. He, he was one of Lance Armstrong's teammates. And somebody asked him, he said, don't you feel, isn't EPO dangerous? And he said, well, no, relative to the risks of plummeting down an Alpine Pass at 60 miles an hour surrounded by 180 other guys, Eh, it's pretty darn safe. Yeah. And it's the same thing with American football. Right? I, I once, I interviewed a Sports Illustrated writer who covers pro football. And he said, Mark, a pro football player's job is to get in their Corvette every Sunday afternoon and smash it into a wall at 60 miles an hour. Of course they have to take drugs just to keep going on. It's, yeah. it's, it's part of what they do. And, and, the, and the
3: trauma, the head injuries, all that stuff is much, could,
1: could be argued as much more... Yeah. Yeah. So and that's something I go into in great detail in the the book is about why is it that our focus on the risk of doping in sport has really underplayed the other risks that are inherent to to playing sports. So like in American football, between the 1940s and 2000, over a thousand people died playing American football. What are the number one reasons of death? Head injuries, heat stroke. And sudden cardi- cardiac death. those are the three biggest killers. Uh, the American College of Sports Medicine has, a, has puts out an annual list of the most harmful, the biggest killers in sports. Doping has never ever entered that list. It's, it's uh, genetic heart de- defects, head injuries and heat stroke, again and again and again. But we focused our sort of public and media hysteria. On doping, why? Because it's interesting, it's salacious. But instead, we should have been focusing on head injuries way before doping, particularly in sports like cycling. I mean, cycling didn't even make helmets mandatory until the mid-2000s. Yeah. You no, know, doping had been banned since 1965 in
3: France. I mean, if you attack head injuries, then you're really attacking the sport. So we can't do that. Let's create this little thing over here called doping and make hysteria about that. It's I good mean, you could argue that that's – yeah. I mean, if you focused on head injuries and football in 1960 or something, there'd be no more football. Right. But that, sadly, we've kind of gotten to yeah. that place. No. But the
1: minute you say that, then the critics will say, well, you're the, you're either – for banning doping or you're against it. You know, you're you either with us or, or yeah. against us. And that doesn't say that you should allow doping in sport because dropping in at 15-foot pipe is way more dangerous yeah. than taking drugs. Yeah. I would argue that surfing 15-foot pipe without a helmet is pretty darn dangerous, particularly compared to the risks of taking EPO. Yeah. No comparison. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we should allow EPO right. and anabolic steroids in, in surfing, which is... As readers and, and consumers of sports entertainment, just keep in mind that sort of the hysteria over the dangers of doping has really been overblown yeah. relative to the inha- other inherent risks of sports. Right. Yeah. Well, Mark, we've said a lot. The
3: book is Spitting in the Soup, Inside the Dirty Game of Doping in Sports, Mark Johnson uh, you're a, a, an amateur surf photographer. I see a lot of your photos. Um, yep. You've been taking photos since we knew each other in the yeah. in 1980s yeah. down at Black's. Yep. Long time. Thanks for being a part of the show. I think this was a great conversation. I'm excited about it.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. And uh, don't take supplements, Scott.
3: Yeah. No, I, that's our message. <laughs> don't take the supplements. If you're going to do it, use the good shit. <laughs> All right. Until next time, adios and aloha.
2: We've got the creator of DJ Music DJ with us. Here music tonight. With us. It's the man who gave you hits like Where You to the Ball. Wake the town and tell the people. I'm sure he'll tell you about the rest. Brothers and sisters for the music maker from Kingston, Jamaica, good gracious me, it's you are come again, y'all. The wind keeps on turning, and about me we keep on burning. Nine, 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 nine. So, when I did this it never i feeling better.